As you're turning in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Judges, chapter 8. If you are a believer in Jesus and you don't have a church home, and the Spirit of the Lord may have been tugging on your heart to say, this is the place for you. It's not a perfect house, but there is a perfect Savior in this house. There's a perfect love from that perfect Savior in this house. And if you want to join this church, I'm going to put some cards here on the platform. And if you can say, yes, I am a believer in Jesus. Yes, I want to become a member of Strong Tower. Yes, I will grow spiritually. And yes, I will adhere to the mission and vision of this church. Come on. The doors are open. So I'm going to leave these here for you. And at the end of the service, you come fill them out and leave them with me. And then we'll contact you about next steps. Today, we're going to talk on the subject of God's grace to Gideon. God's grace to Gideon. I'm excited whenever I get to talk about Jesus, and I'm excited to talk about the grace of Jesus. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us so. And thank you that you shed love abroad in our hearts that we get to love you back. Thank you for showing us what love is, demonstrating the sacrificial nature of love. And thank you, God, for filling our hearts in such a way that when we get distracted with empty things, worthless things, that we can't stay in those places long because no one satisfies like you. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who trusts in him. Thank you, oh God. And now, Lord, as we come to your word, it's good, it's sweet, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Lord, may you minister to your people today. Please use me to teach and communicate your word, but do what only you can do, and that's bring about change and conviction and even salvation for those who may be lost. Thank you that we get to engage with you. Oh, Lord, speak. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Viva mentioned in the announcements, Thanksgiving is coming. It's coming. And some of us are going to have the joy and the privilege of being invited over to someone's home for Thanksgiving. And if you get an invitation from someone, and if your mama raised you right, you are supposed to say to the people who have invited you over, can I bring something? That's if your mama raised you right. If someone invites you to Thanksgiving, uh, can I bring something? Now, the macaroni and cheese, that's reserved for people that really understand how to throw down. Because if the mac and cheese ain't right, Thanksgiving ain't going to be right. So don't try to bring something that's above your pay grade. Don't, don't, don't try to bring something that you're not gifted in. But sometimes, amen. But sometimes you'll get people that when they invite you over and you ask, what can I bring? Some of them will say, don't bring anything. Don't bring anything. Now, when God 
invites us to his table, to dine with him, to fellowship with him. He says, come, come to my table. We will ask, Lord, what can we bring? And God will say, don't bring anything. Bring yourself and just come as you are. That's what grace is. Grace is unearned favor where God invites us in to dine with him, to be with him. And we can't bring anything to that table of grace. You see, when we come to the table of grace, God's table, all we can do is receive. That's what grace is. We can't earn it. We can't work for it. We just receive the favor of the Lord. Because God is the one who said in Psalm 23, verse 5, that he's preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So come as you are. Don't bring any kind of works to this table because you might be tempted to think that you work your way to this table, that you deserve to be at this table of grace because of something you did. No, all you did was say yes to the invitation to come. Receive the invitation. Sit at the table of grace and enjoy fellowship with God. And not only must we receive his grace, we must believe his grace. I promise you I'm coming down your street and I'm going to drop some mail off in your mailbox in a minute. Because there's this thing called saving grace. But there's also this thing called sustaining grace. You see, a lot of us, especially if we came up Baptist, we understand saving grace, that we can't work to become a Christian. We must receive what Jesus did, his finished work, to be saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. But what a lot of us do is that we get saved by grace, and we come to the table with God, and then we think it's up to us to then maintain our salvation. And we start working, not working out our salvation, but we start working for our salvation. And we start thinking that if I do good things, God will do good things for me. And if I don't do right, then God won't do right for me. So our salvation becomes works-based, performance-driven, and we think, again, it's up to us and not to Jesus. But I want to stop by here and share the good news with you. The good news of the gospel is not just for lost people who need to hear about the saving grace of God. But the gospel, the good news, is for Christian people who need to learn about the sustaining grace of God. I can't work to get to the table. And I can't work to keep myself at the table. I'm at the table because of grace. I'm sustained at the table. I'm invited to the table because of God's grace. Grace cannot be summed up in one sentence. Grace cannot be summed up in a book. And there are many books written about grace. Grace cannot be summed up in a song. Even though John Newton gave it a very good try. John Newton is the man who wrote the song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The most recognizable song in the world 
is amazing grace. It's sang at least, according to estimates, 10 million times a year, more than any other song, Amazing Grace. And the man who wrote it, John Newton, was born in England in 1725, and he became a sailor at the age of 11. After his mother died, his father remarried, but his father also spent a lot of time with his son and brought him onto the naval ship with him, and then later on to slave ships with him. So John Newton, at the age of 11, grew up around sailors, where in order to function in that kind of fellowship, he learned how to curse like a sailor. And so he grew up on slave ships, and then he would eventually become a captain of several slave ships. But after a violent storm at sea in 1748, uh, John Newton had his come to Jesus meeting and, and he cried out to Jesus to save him and to have mercy on his life. And you know a storm has to be bad if a sailor thinks that they're about to die. However, although he converted in 1748, he continued slave trading until 1755. Uh, it reminds me of a lot of our conversions. We make a, a, a commitment. We pray a prayer. But sometimes it takes a while for some things to get out of our life. There's no instant where, where everything just goes out of our life when we come to Jesus. Some people maybe, but for most of us, sanctification is a process. And the man who wrote Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, it was a process for him to get out of the slave trading industry. But in 1764, after retiring from being a slave ship captain, uh, Newton entered into the ministry and became an Anglican priest. And later he would become an abolitionist that worked with Will, William Wilberforce to see slavery abolished in England. But in 1773, he wrote a song called Faith's Review and Expectation. Faith's review and expectation. Why did he write this? Well, while he was ministering to his parish, John Newton decided that he would write hymns that would accompany his sermons. So on New Year's Day of that year, he was about to preach a passage where David said, Who am I and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And he wrote a hymn to go with his sermon that was called Faith's Review and Expectation. This song would later become known as Amazing Grace. God's grace that has brought me safe thus far. His grace will lead me home. And as I mentioned, the most recognized song in the world. But if you notice, as he's writing that song, he's recounting back on his pre-conversion and even his early days in Christ where he's reminded that he was a wretch in need of grace. Some people are offended by that term and they don't want to use that term when they sing amazing grace because they're into all this positivity stuff. No, you're not a wretch. The thing I also look at with this song is that he is the author of the lyrics, but if you go to the Library of Congress and actually pull the song, there is no composer for the music. So therefore, when he wrote it, 
he wrote it to a particular kind of melody that the congregants in his church sang with him, but no one actually wrote music to it until some time later, and they wrote it to a British tune. But if you look at it technically, there is no one who composed music to Amazing Grace. But those who study the hymns have gone so far as to say, well, John Newton, a lot of his experience was on slave ships. And it is believed that he got the melody, although not written in music form, but he got the rhythm of the song by listening to the enslaved in the hull of the ship as they were agonizing and humming in order to help stay alive. And so he heard this rhythmic humming from the Africans in the hull of the ship, and that was one of the things that also helped him write this song that we sing. But he did not give them the credit if that is in case, the case of what occurred. But what we see is that the man who wrote Amazing Grace needed God's saving grace and God's sustaining grace. And I stand before you today as a man who also needed God's saving grace and I still need his sustaining grace in my life. God's grace is the means the motivation, and the might to live for God. Once again, it is the means, the motivation, and the might to live for God. It's because of grace that God would choose us. It's because of grace that God would use us. And it's because of grace that God will never refuse us. You see, I'm a rapper, so sometimes stuff got to rhyme when I preach, and, and I hope it helps you to remember that because of grace, he chooses us. Because of grace, he uses us. And because of grace, he will never refuse us. Because I got to help somebody today. You grew up not hearing about grace, but about law and legalism. Because some preachers thought and think that if they preach about grace, their people are going to live any old kind of way, and, and they will abuse grace. Well, preach, I got to let you know something. If you don't preach grace and you keep preaching law, people are going to live any old kind of way they want to live anyway. So you might as well preach grace to encourage people that grace sets us free to live for Jesus. That grace is not a license to sin, but it's a liberation unto godliness to live for Jesus. And we can't control what people do when the word is preached. Just preach the word. And we're going to see grace this morning personified in the life of Gideon. So walk with me through these three points about how God's grace chooses us, uses us, and never refuses us. And in the life of Gideon, the first thing I want you to see is that if God could choose Gideon, he can choose you. Why? Because Gideon brought nothing to the table. So we repent of thinking we bring anything to the table. We bring nothing to the table. When God showed up and called Gideon, Gideon was threshing wheat in a cave in, Genesis, in, Gideon, in Judges chapter 6. He, he, he's so afraid of the enemy that he's doing something that's normally done outside so you can catch a breeze to separate the, separate the wheat from the chaff. He's in a cave throwing up wheat where there's no wind blowing. 
Why? Because the Jews had escaped to the hills and the mountains because they were afraid of the Midianites and Gideon was no different. He hid in the cave. He threshed wheat in a cave. He was fearful. But when the Lord showed up, I believe a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord spoke to Gideon and said to him, I am with you. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, wait a minute. We know God does not lie, but he called a fearful man a mighty man of valor. Why would God do that? Because God has a way of speaking those things that are not as though they are. You're not a mighty man right now, but you will be. I see something in you, Gideon, that you don't even see in yourself. You are afraid. You are ruled by fear. But I see a mighty man of valor in you, and I never call the qualified, because you are not qualified, but I qualify everyone that I call because my grace is transformative. So when God found you, you did not find him. He found you and you were broken, busted and disgusted. Even if you did have a nice dress on and a nice suit on, you were lost and cut off and separated from life in God. And when God shows up to Gideon, Gideon gives God all these excuses. After God says, you're a mighty man, go and deliver Israel in your strength. He says, God, my, my clan is the smallest. Uh, uh, you do know that my tribe is the weakest. He starts giving God excuses. He's the guy that had to rely on signs. Say, okay, God, if you're with me, uh, give me a sign with this fleece. Make the fleece dry, the ground wet. God does it. Okay, God, uh, uh, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. He's the guy that needs signs to confirm the word of God because he lacks faith. Yet God still chose him. And Gideon brought nothing to the table. I want to encourage you today with the fact that you brought nothing to the table. You didn't choose God. God chose you. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 16 to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. That is grace. He says, not only did I choose you, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. So I not only chose you to have a relationship with me, but I empowered you in such a way where that relationship will produce fruit in your life so that other people can taste this fruit so that they can taste me through you. Let your good works be seen before men that they may glorify your father in heaven. Live your life in such a way that when people get a hold of you, they get a hold of Jesus. So I didn't just save you to take you to heaven. I saved you that you might bring heaven down to earth to people who are living in a living hell every day. I give you saving grace and sustaining Grace, Jesus told those guys, I chose you. Because some of them would say, hey, we found the Messiah. No, you didn't. The Messiah let you find him because he already chose you and gave you the grace to find him. Because if we found God on our own, we'd be in heaven right now boasting. You know, I figured Jesus out. You know, I found him, you know. I, I, I was smart enough, you know. I was good enough, you know. No, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were separated from life in God. So he must choose us and give us the faith to choose him. I know I'm still not getting through because some of us still think we bring something to the table. Well, 1 Corinthians 9, beginning at verse 26 says, For 
you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. Remember when you played ball in the street? And if you were playing basketball, it was five on five. And they would pick the best players first. And then there were other people to make sure y'all had 10 out there. Those were the scrubs. Those were the dudes that couldn't play. And with God's squad... He picks up scrubs. Each and every one of us is a scrub. We don't bring anything to the table. We just make the teams even. But he chooses us. Why? Because he's the superstar on the team. He's the one that says, if you're with me, you're on the winning team. So God chose Gideon. That brother brought nothing to the table, but God still chose him. God chooses people who are weak and lost and last and least. He chooses us. Thank God. But then secondly, if God could use Gideon, he can use you. So after he chooses you and you bring nothing to the table, he gives you everything you need for life and godliness so you can do something for him in his strength, in his power, and for his glory. Because when God chose Gideon, he said, Gideon, I'm going to use you. And he used Gideon to tear down his father's altar. So if you read through his life, beginning in Judges chapter 6, you'll see that the first thing he had to do was minister at home. And that is his father had an, an idol, an altar to Baal. And he had to tear that down first before he dealt with stuff out in the community. A lot of ministers want to skip home and try to minister in everybody else's house. But no, you got to stop and minister in your own house. And in this case, with his own father. And they changed his name because he tore down Baal's altar. They, they started calling that boy Jerubbaal. That is, let Baal contend with him. Because the Jews were about to kill Gideon for taking down an altar to Baal. That's how far gone they were from the Lord. But Gideon's dad said, you know what? My boy may be on to something. If Baal is a god, let Baal contend with him. So they named him Jerubbaal. And so now he's ready to go out and fight the Midianites. And the Bible says that the Midianites, man, they had so many people, so many camels, they were like sand on a seashore, a moniker that used to be used for the Jews, but now used for the enemies of the Jews. And the Bible lets us know that the Midianites had 135,000 soldiers. Gideon at that time had 32,000. And so they were outnumbered, 135,000 to 32,000. And God says to Gideon, uh, Gideon, you have too many people in your army in order for me to bring about deliverance for the Jews. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, can I put it in rewind? God, I know you're omniscient. I know you know all things, but your math is off. God's math is just different. 135,000, 32,000, y'all got too many people. Hmm. Because God knows his people. Because he knows if y'all get a victory, 32,000 to 135,000, y'all going to be talking more about what y'all did as opposed to what God did. And that's how some of us are when we get a little something, something. We talk less about God and we talk more about us. 
Snoop Dogg got a star on Hollywood Walk of Fame. And he started thanking everybody. And at the end, he said, I just want to thank me for all this hard work I've done. <laughs> I hear you, Snoop. But the only way you can do the work is because God gave you the grace to do the work. So all of it goes back to God anyway. We ought to know that as Christians. The Jews ought to have known that. But God says, no, y'all number two bid. So, so Gideon said, those who are fearful, y'all going home. And 22,000 left and went home. Left them with 10,000 versus 135. God shows back up and says, y'all still got too many people. And if I'm Gideon, I'm like, Lord, again, your math is different. God says, take them on down to the water. I'm going to separate them there. And so they go down to the water and God says, I'm going to separate them by how they drink water. 9,700 of them drank water on their knees around the water hole. Whereas 300 of them stooped down to get the water, cupped it in their hands and lapped it out like dogs. God says, with the 300 who drank the water like dogs, I'm going to bring deliverance for Israel. Send the 9,700 home. And now 300 is going against 135,000. God, your math is different. But when God is for you, when God is with you, it doesn't matter how many come against you. Because God in one man is a majority and God in 300 can put the enemy to flight. So he used Gideon and 300 men put the enemy to flight. Now, God did the work because when they blew the trumpets and broke the cisterns that had torches in them, the enemy thought that they were surrounded by hundreds of thousands. So they turned on each other. And the Bible says 120,000 of them died because of the confusion that 300 brought about. Read your Bible. And now Gideon and his guys get courageous now and they chase the remaining 15,000 and they defeat them. Man, that's a wonderful story. This is the same God who said march around those walls seven times and watch those walls of Jericho come down. He's the God of miracles. And you would think, man, hey, God used this man. But this is right when this man made some bad decisions. Why is it that when we find ourselves at the apex of success that we're most vulnerable to sin? I think because we get comfortable because of being successful and we don't pray like we used to pray in the valley. Now we're on the mountain of success. We believe in the height. We believe in the press clippings and we get the big head. And so after this battle, Gideon retired. And the people come to Gideon and they say, Gideon, we want to make you king. Can I read to you Judges 8, beginning at verse 22? Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Oh, wow, you see that? That's the right answer. This is a true monarchy of a theocracy of God being the king of Israel. Now, later they're going to ask for a king and they're going to reject God as their king. And even the prophets warned them saying, if you get a king, let me tell you what's going to happen. 
They're going to multiply your taxes, which means a king is going to take your money. I know you see all the other nations have kings, but, but okay, you want one, they're going to take your money. They're also going to take your daughters because they're going to multiply wives for themselves. Israel said during the days of Saul, we still want a king. We don't care about none of that. Okay, I'm going to give you what you want. But before that, they offered the kingship to Gideon. Gideon turns it down. But let's keep reading, though. Verse 24, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they stripped the bodies of the gold that was on them. Verse 25, so they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. You know you flossing. If your camel is wearing a gold necklace with a medallion on it, there's some bling bling in the Midian camp. So they give Gideon all that stuff. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Wait a minute, bro. You said you didn't want to be king, but you want to be treated like one? You want to get the tribute from the people, but you don't want to have responsibility of leading the people. You're using your influence that you have at the moment in order to take advantage of your followers. So you take their money and you make an ephod. What's an ephod? An ephod was an, a garment that the high priest wore. It was holy clothing. No one else could wear this kind of clothing. Now we know David danced in an ephod, but here we have this man saying, look, look, look. I'm going to take the gold and I'm going to make an ephod. This garment that a priest would wear, I'm going to make one out of gold. Because could this be that Gideon is saying, I'm going to act like I'm a priest even though I'm not a priest. I'm going to act like a king even though I'm not a king. Wait a minute, what happened to the dude that was all afraid in the cave? Now you're trying to act like a king without being one. Now you're trying to be a priest without officially being one. And what you did was create an idol just like your daddy used to have, that the people are worshiping and it's become a snare to them. Gideon, what's going on with you? Then it says in verse 28, thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, which is Gideon, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Abimelech is translated as, my father is king. So you didn't want to be a king, but you had a boy with an old lady across town. You're going to name this kid, my father is king. Gideon, what happened to you? Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age, and he was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Ophrah of the Abiz rites. So God used him by grace. 
This man got prideful and self-centered. He used to center God. Now he's centering himself. But I said I had a third and final point, and that is if God could choose Gideon, if God could use Gideon, God would never refuse Gideon. Pastor Chris, how do you know God did not refuse Gideon? Because I'm listening because I want to make sure God won't refuse me if and when I act a fool. If and when I act out of my character. God didn't refuse him? No, God did not refuse him. How do you know? Hebrews 11.32, the hall of faith. The writer says, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Chapter 8 did not end well, but we see this brother is recorded and included in the hall of faith, which is really a hall of grace because none of them deserve to be in there who are mentioned in Hebrews Chapter 11, that includes Abraham, Noah, Moses. We're talking about drunkards, murderers, adulterers, liars. Because here's what we need to know. Although Gideon made a mess at the table, God still celebrated him at the table. This is why grace is not only amazing, it's scandalous. Grace offends our self-righteousness. Grace offends our work ethic because we still think it's up to us. But when we mess up and God still not only has us at the table, but celebrates us at the table, grace blows your mind. Pastor, why you say that? Remember the prodigal son who left the table, left his father so he could live a riotous life. And after he was broke out there and living in a pig's pen, he came to his senses and said, I'm going to go back. But you know, when I go back, I'll go back as a slave or a servant because, man, I've let my dad down. I, I don't deserve to be a son, but I'm going to go back. And as he's making his way back, the father is there looking for his son. And when he sees the son, he runs towards the son, which in that day and age, fathers didn't do stuff like that running. Because in order to run... They would pick their robe up, exposing their legs. And fathers just didn't do that kind of stuff. But this father was madly in love with his son, and he ran to meet his son. And as the son started saying, Father, I've sinned, I've messed up, I don't deserve to be treated like your son. It's as if the father didn't even hear all that. He said, hey, 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 get the robe, the best robe, put it on my boy. Slay the fatty calf. Get the gold ring to put it back on his finger because my son who was dead is alive. Let's party and get back to the table where I can celebrate my son who once was lost but now is found. That's what the father does with us. He celebrates us even when we've been foolish. Now, again, I know that's dangerous to teach, but it's biblical. As I close, i got to tell you just a couple of things what grace does. Grace causes you to see God's faithfulness more than we see our own. Why are you at the table? It's not because of my faithfulness. It's because of his. Why? Because God remains faithful even when I'm not. Mm. So I look more at him than I do at myself. 
When I read the Hall of Faith, man, I look more at God's amazing grace than how God used these frail, broken individuals. Grace sustains us, especially when we don't finish well. We all have aspirations that we're going to finish well. Paul said, man, I've kept the faith. I've I've fought a good fight. I've finished my race. And, and, And Paul finished well. But most of us, we don't know. Okay. Abraham didn't finish well. The father of faith didn't finish well? No, because after Sarah died, and there's even evidence that they may have been separated before she died. Maybe I'll talk about that in Bible study Wednesday. The father of the faith may have been separated from Sarah. But not only that, when she dies, he remarries. Nothing wrong with getting remarried. But he remarries multiple women and has concubines. Wait a minute, just a while back, your body couldn't work and you asked God for some holy, uh, 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 you asked God to help your body out so you could have your son Isaac. And now you're flowing in that miracle in such a way where you're not only taking another wife, but you take multiple wives at the end. We all don't finish well. But his grace covers us. Now, now here's the thing. There was a preacher many years ago named Zachary Timms. Promising preacher. Looked like Will Smith in the face. But they found him dead in a hotel room with cocaine on his body. He was a drug addict and no one knew it. Grace sustains us even at the end because some will say, ah, he's not going to heaven. Some of you come from places that says, if you commit suicide, you're going to go to hell. Now, I'm not encouraging suicide, but I am encouraging the grace of God. Because suicide is a sin just like coveting. And either Jesus covers coveting and suicide or he doesn't covet it at all. But if we say you got to confess your sin before you die, that's works. No, I believe in grace that I'm covered by the finished work of Jesus. All of my sins, whether I confess them or not, that's grace. But I know somebody, no, no, if you kill yourself. We try to preach fear to people the way the Republican Party does to its constituents. Fear to make you vote a certain way. I shouldn't have said that, but I said it. (laughs) Democratic Party don't do much with the votes anyway. All right, uh, uh, thirdly, grace superabounds over sin. Romans says that. For where sin abounds, grace superabounds. You can't outsend the grace of God. You can't. You can't outsend the grace of God. But if you're a Christian, why would you try? Because grace that brings us salvation, Titus chapter 2, has appeared to us, brings salvation, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. So if grace is working in you, grace is going to work through you. Grace is not only going to bring you in, grace is going to bring you through. Grace is going to allow you to say yes and give you the authority and the desire to say no to stuff that breaks the heart of God and even your heart. I mean, to let you know, grace superbounds over sin. Grace does not define us by our worst chapter. Because the Bible says that God's writing a book on each and every one of us. And there's some bad chapters in the book. But I'm so glad the bad chapters are not the definition of who I am in Christ. It's part of my testimony, but it's not my identity. Because I want to know when God called Gideon 
in the cave who was fearful. Did God know that this brother was going to spaz out later in chapter 8? Or did God find out and got information and discover like, wow, he sure acted crazy. No, God knew. Wow, Isaiah 46, 10, he knows the end from the beginning. He's not a God who sits wondering what's going to happen. He's a God who ordains what is happening, and he, uses, he allows people's free will to work with his ultimate sovereign will. Gideon acted a fool, but it didn't surprise God, yet he still called him because God knew that last chapter, even though it's a bad chapter, is not going to be what defines you. My grace does, Gideon. Because grace is like an epilogue. An epilogue. What, what, what's an epilogue? An epilogue when you're reading a book. An epilogue when you come to the end of the book, the conclusion. An epilogue is the conclusion after the conclusion. An epilogue, uh, it comes when the book is done, but it points you forward. Sometimes the author will speak directly to the reader in first person, or the author will say, this is what's coming so that you want to get the next book. So no matter how it ends, the epilogue is pointing forward. Okay, I'm not coming through. Marvel movies. I promise you, I'm, I'm about to close in prayer. Uh, Marvel movies. When they end, they don't end. You're sitting there in the theater because you know an epilogue is coming to give you some information that's pointing to the next movie, the next series. Now, the movie is over. Credits start rolling, but you're not moving because the epilogue is coming to give you some information that you didn't know before. Back in the day, I used to ruin movies on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Movie would come out on Friday. I would preach on it on Sunday. But I have learned to have wisdom not to do that. Because some of y'all would wait for me. <laughs> so I don't do that no more. So Wakanda Forever came out Friday. I'm not going to ruin it and tell you on Sunday what the movie is about. But I will tell you, you better stay away for that epilogue. You better wait for that epilogue because when you stay, a couple credits going to roll, then the epilogue is going to come and it's going to point forward to a better time. What you see in Hebrews chapter 11 is the epilogue of the closed chapter in Judges chapter 8 with Gideon's life that God says, okay, it ended that way. But the epilogue is saying it's so much better than how it ended in chapter 8. I'm just here to let you know the epilogue is God's glory. It's God's grace in your life and in my life. By his grace, he'll choose you. By his grace, he'll use you. And by his grace, he will never refuse you. Let's stand for prayer. If you haven't seen the movie, go see it, because next week I might just say the whole thing. So you might want to get up in there. <laughs> Let me see a show of hands. How many saw the movie? How many saw the I see that hand. Hold the hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. As we get a small grasp of grace, or we get a grasp of the one who is holding us, man, it changes everything. You're less concerned about what people think about you because you know how God feels about you. You're not so into trying to do everything perfectly because you can't. The Bible says God knows our frame is dust. 
Not an excuse to be dustier than we need to be, but man, Lord, I'm broken and God delights to use broken things. When I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. I'm freed up even in my brokenness. And God will get the glory by using me in spite of myself. Father, we pray that what we heard today will cause us to want to spend a little bit more time with you. Want to recognize that you are no respective persons. What you've done for others, you will do for all. Thank you that you are a gracious God. Thank you that you have invited us to your table of grace. Thank you for what Jesus did that not only brings us in, but keeps us there. Never to be separated from you, O oh God, because of the love of Jesus. I pray that grace would embolden us, free us, that we would not try to reduce the Christian faith to a bunch of do's and don'ts and rules and regulations, but that we would be free, free to be who we are. As Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're transforming us from the inside out. Teach us your ways, oh God. Now, Lord, as we leave this place, but never from your presence, we go forth, Lord, saying, use us in the marketplace. Use us in school. Use us in the home. Wherever we go, may your fragrance, your aroma, your light, your salt permeate in us, from us and through us, to a world that really needs to know Jesus. Lord, it's not up to us, but you'll use us. Use us, oh God. Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think, and it's according to the power that is working in us. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Have a blessed day. If you want to join the church, Come fill one of these out. We'll be right here for you.